When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Human Circus. Both Shaoruk and the Yongle Emperor ruled in the aftermath of strife and war. In Shaoruk's case, he oversaw an empire that his father Timur had built, an empire taking in part or all of Turkey, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Iraq, Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and more. A land carved out by a life of conquest, and by levels of violence sufficient to make one suspect some mythologization at work. Towering pyramids of human skulls stacking up toward the sky, and so forth. He had been there for significant portions of that carving out himself. He had been there with Timur in 1402, at the Battle of Ankara, when they had defeated and captured the Ottoman Sultan, Ayazid. With Timur's death in 1405, that violence was directed inward, from those on the exterior who saw a new weakness, and also among the would-be inheritors of all that Timur had accrued. The sort of scramble that could so often occur in the wake of such a successful conqueror, particularly at the birth of a dynasty, particularly when there had been no clear plan for succession put in place by the founding ruler. Timur's grandson, Khalil Sultan, was first off the mark, his convenient location and decisive actions, allowing him to take Timur's capital of Samarkand, along with the treasury. But there were other claimants, other grandsons in Sultan Hussein, Iskander, and Pir Muhammad. There was Khalil Sultan's father, Miran Shah, and his brother, Abu Bakr, supporters of his who fell to outside forces, looking to take advantage of the confusion. There was also Shah Rukh, Timur's son, ruling from Herat, and he did not need to seize the prize of Samarkand in battle, only to wait, to maintain his strength for a few years, 
just until Khalil Sultan's rule failed and was betrayed. To take that city then left open to him, and add it to the empire he was consolidating. Khalil Sultan, his nephew, would come to him in the end to submit, and by 1411 was dead in what is now part of Tehran. By that point, the rule of the Yonglu emperor, named Zhu Di, was well established, but it had not come about without adversity. He had not simply stepped up and into the throne one peaceful, pleasant morning. It had been much more complicated than that. It had taken some years to bring his realm back from the devastation and fallout of a civil war. His father, the Ming founder, had tried to avoid such complications, had gone to some effort to do so, seeing clearly the threat they posed to the dynasty he was leaving behind, and having risen from the bottom to participate in driving off the last of the Yuan emperors, he knew a little something about dynastic vulnerability. He issued documents outlining how the empire ought to be governed, how the princes ought to be governed, how his successor ought to be chosen. His first choice would have been his eldest son, Zhu Biao, but that son died in 1392, six years before he would. It was his grandson, Zhu Biao's son, who would become the second Ming ruler, the Jianwen emperor. But his reign would last less than four years before being swallowed up by rebellion. It would be one of his uncles who marched into the capital in 1402 and burned his palace. That uncle would present a scorched body, which he said was that of the dead Jianwen emperor, though stories would later develop that maybe he had escaped. That uncle took the throne as the Yonglu emperor in the summer of 1402. Both Shah and the Yonglu emperor had come to rule through bloody struggles over succession, their nephews suffering as a result. Today, we follow a journey that connects the dots between them. Hello and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, the history podcast that roams that world in the footsteps of its travelers, its friars, merchants, and liars. And it is, of course, a podcast that is supported by the generosity of kind listeners such as yourself. Maybe, actually, you yourself listening right now. If you're not already doing so, for as little as a dollar a month, you can enjoy ad-free episodes, early access, and bonus listening at patreon.com forward slash human circus. And this time, I want to especially thank Chris and One Brown Meese for doing so. Thank you both very much. All of that said, let's get to the story. Having finished with Abdelatif last time, we are onto something new today. This time, the topic is a Timurid expedition to Ming China, 
the early 15th century embassy from Timur's son Sharuk to the Yongle emperor, as witnessed by the painter Giyath al-Din Nakash. We have touched a little on this ming timurid diplomatic exchange before on the podcast. On Timur himself, trading somewhat belligerent missives with his counterpart far to the east. And when I say we have touched on it, we have done so mostly in the incredibly distant past. In, I believe, the Schiltberger series, the very first one. But also a little more recently, when we followed the embassy of Rui Gonzalez de Clevijo to Timur's Samarkand and saw Chinese ambassadors there in that city. At that time, there were murmurs of ill will, more than murmurs, really, open and unmistakable displays, with Timur very deliberately downgrading the Chinese envoys in the seating order, and just in the unlikely case that the subtleties of this gesture had gone misunderstood, explaining to them that this was because their master was a thief and a bad man. It was the kind of statement that it was difficult to walk back from. Timur would not be treated as a vassal, and he would no longer pay tribute. He would instead be departing for China on his last great military campaign, one which he never completed, dying before ever reaching that goal. Safe to say that it was a relationship with plenty of room for improvement. And since then, things had improved. First, Timur's grandson, Khalil Sultan, and then his son, Shahrukh, the eventual victor in the struggle for succession after his father's death, would act to normalize the relationship. Shahrukh, in combination with his son, Ulug Beg, would exchange 20 embassies with the Chinese emperor, achieving much greater conviviality and regularity than the Timurid founder. They would release Chinese diplomats that Timur had held captive, would seek and nurture ties and trade, while, for his part, the Ming emperor would reciprocate. He would send praise, calling Shahrukh enlightened, perceptive, knowing, mature, sensible, and greater than all the Muslims, and wishing that envoys and merchants should constantly come and go, and there should be no interruptions. The emperor, the Yongle emperor, to use his era name, sent silks, satins, silvers, ceramics, paper, and falcons, as well as special gifts for the princes and lords, receiving in return camels, sheep, jade, and horses. The emperor would be especially pleased with one particular horse, and commissioned a painting of it that he sent by way of thanks with a later embassy. Shahrukh, even when he'd governed Herat under the rule of Timur, had always shown himself to be a very outward-looking ruler, interested in communication with his counterparts near and far. And the emperor seems to have also been interested in diplomacy, or at least saw it as a valuable tool, 
applying it closer to home with the Jurchens, and in Tibet and Korea, seeking on his western flank to nurture friendly relations with buffer states between himself and the Timurids. I should mention that these exchanges between the Timurid and Ming empires did not always go perfectly smoothly. It was not all effortless praise and present-giving, for those would only come a little later. There was the 1412 Chinese embassy, an accompanying letter in Turkish, Chinese, and Persian, in which the emperor declared himself, quote, Lord of the realms, of the face of the earth, and, unaware that Khalil Sultan was already dead, demanded that Shah Rukh make peace with his nephew and one-time rival. It was just the sort of thing that Timur had taken offense to, the assumption that the emperor was in any position to issue orders, as if to a mere vassal state. Shah Rukh did not embark on an invasion then, but he did send a pretty strongly worded reply, which included the recommendation that the Yongle emperor convert to Islam. There's a good possibility that his more abrasive language was softened, either by those charged with delivering it, sometimes you need to protect your boss from their own mistakes, or those on the other side who translated and transmitted it, perhaps more intent on conveying what the message should be than what it strictly speaking was. Either way, that mission was well-received, and it was not just undertaken by Shah Rukh's personal representatives. It included those of a broader collection of Central Asian cities and powers, all of whom stood to benefit from healthy relations and trade with Ming China, and those under its sway. In response to this large diplomatic and trade mission, and the tribute it brought, the Yongle Emperor dispatched a series of three increasingly amiable embassies to Shah Rukh's Herat, emphasizing a desire for commerce, addressing the Timurid ruler much more as an equal monarch of an equal power, and getting to all that complementary language we already touched on. When the third of these Ming embassies returned to China, it did so with a Timurid delegation, and among that delegation was a chronicler and painter named Giath al-Din. In 1419, Giath al-Din and the others traveled east, and following his written report, noted down to be narrativized upon his return, we'll go with them. I have seen various dates given for the departure, but I'll stick to the one given in the version of the text I'll be using throughout, and I'll say that on the 4th of December, Yath al-Din left Shah Rukh's Herat. Severe weather led to delays on the road, but making his way via Balkh, by the 22nd of January, he was in Samarkand. The party was supposed to meet up there with the envoys of one of Shah Rukh's sons, but they had already departed. Still, Giath al-Din would hardly be traveling alone. He himself was there on the behalf of one of Shah Rukh's sons, but Shah Rukh 
had sent representatives too, headed by a man named Shadi. And so had his other sons. And so did other lords of the region. There were also the returning Chinese envoys that were to go with them, as well as the merchants who tended to attach themselves to such trips. On February 25th, this large party left Samarkand. Of the journey itself, there was at first not a great deal to be said, but then increasingly more as they moved into more unfamiliar territory. They passed through Tashkent. They had good weather by May, and the views afforded by the roads, mountains, and meadows were pleasant beyond description. There was tension, strife even, as conflict broke out. But the steward of the region negotiated a truce and met them with a letter of safe passage. As they journeyed on, they found the water frozen, even in June, and rain and sleet fell often. They crossed rivers and mountains. They listened with concern to news of an embassy that had been plundered, and they resolved to be more careful themselves. In modern-day Xinjiang, they saw many Buddhists, or in the language of the text in translation, idolaters, with their many temples and one particularly large figure of the Buddha. Elsewhere, there was a place of dervishes and their hostel. At what is now Hami, there was a large and highly ornamented mosque, and just opposite, a Buddhist temple, where Gyath al-Din, an artist himself, admired the artistic mastery evident in a golden statue within, and the fantastic forms that had been painted without, the two demons struggling at the doors. Out in the wilds, there was a curious encounter with a yak, so large and strong, it apparently seized a rider from his steed and carried him off on its horns. During this stretch of the journey, they were met by a group of Chinese scribes who recorded their names and the numbers that went with them, keeping an account of such visitors. And then later, in late August, they were greeted by another group, who also took the names and numbers of merchants or servants who were attached to each emissary, warning them that it was important they did not inflate the number, for if their accounting was found not to match with the truth, then they, the visiting envoys, would lose credibility. Duly noted in the record, we read that Amir Shadi and Kochka had 200 people with them, that Sultan Nakhmad and Gyat al-Din had 150, Argudak had 60, Ardawan 50, and Taj al-Din the same. All these people represented different figures of Timurid royalty. Some envoys had at this point gone ahead, and others had not yet arrived. But along with those who had become separated, the mission Gyat al-Din accompanied represented the far-flung provinces of Khorasan, Mazandaran, Khwarazm, Badakhshan, Ghazni, Kabul, and Kandahar, along with Transoxiana and Fars. This greeting party did not just assess the numbers of their merchants and servants, they also welcomed them. 
offering hospitality, offering food. In a meadow, which Giath al-Din likened to a garden of paradise, they set up canopies and seats, served goose and other roast birds, fresh and dried fruit, and other cooked foods. They also provided everyone with the sheep, barley, and flour they needed, possibly for the journey ahead, and quote, all sorts of intoxicants. The next day, there was more feasting, more goose and fruit, along with cake and delicious bread in the tent of the local ruler. Opposite his seat was a great kettle drum, and to either side of it, performing singers and musicians with strings, flutes, and cymbals. And quote, beautiful boys, made up like girls, with rouge and powder, rubbed on their faces and pearls in their ears. There, in an open square formed of tents and stock-still armored soldiers, they watched, all receiving a little branch to tuck in their headwear so that the scene became like a forest. They watched as the performers put on animal masks and danced. There was wine, lots of wine, enough that Giath al-Din quoted this verse, evidently familiar to him and his audience. Cast Bauram's lasso of prey, clasp Jamshid's cup, for I have crossed this desert, and there is neither Bauram nor onager. It is, of course, not a verse I am familiar with. I'm assuming the onager translation is in reference to the wild donkey, rather than the siege weapon. But, in any case, I tend to think the crossing of the desert and clasping of the cup are the elements to really cling on to here. The company drank with great thirst, and the wine continued to be poured. Giath al-Din described moon-faced, tulip-cheeked boys holding delicious wine, and how the servers brought platters of nuts, dates, watermelon, and also pickled garlic and onion to accompany the wine. At some point, they brought out a bird mask, something like a stork, but large enough for a boy to climb inside and make the stork dance in every direction. I'm imagining something like a lion dance here, not to be confused with a line dance, but I might be way off. The audience, Giath al-Din wrote, was astonished, and the day, from morning until evening, was spent in enjoyment and pleasure. Not all days on the road were difficult ones, not even then, but the next day was for the desert. The next many days were for the desert, to be taken in several stages. There was a strong mountain fortress a few days in, only one gate in and one out, where their names were once again recorded as they entered, likely the gate fortress in the Great Wall. There was a large town in what is now Gansu province, with a post house at its gate, where they left their pack animals and belongings, and each received food, a bed, silk pajamas, and a servant. The town was square, strong-walled and towered, its bazaars watered and swept. There were pigs 
kept in many of the houses, and mutton and pork hanging alongside each other in the butcher shops, an indication that they had left the largely Muslim world behind. Giath al-Din's description is all clean lines, straight streets, neatly cut baked bricks, and colored tiles comparable to those found in Iran. Remember that he was describing these elements to people back home. Along with the beautiful boys standing before the temple doors, calling out for people to enter. The next town, or perhaps city, Ganjo, was larger than the last, and Giath al-Din had eyes especially for the temple, maybe because its artistic value appealed to the artist in him, maybe because he thought that was what would most interest those back home. He described its dimensions, the fifty-cubit-tall idol at its center, the figures that seemed to move in such a way you thought them alive, the intricate paintings on the walls, the little buildings all around it, which he compared to the cells of a caravanserai, each with gold-spun curtains, gilded platforms, chairs, candlesticks, and banqueting vessels. He noted the representations of demons that were made to hold a pagoda aloft, and the pictures of an emperor enthroned, with slaves to either side. And at the town after that, everything was large, everything excellent. The buildings and people were numerous. The banquet served up to them greater than in any other town before. The temple larger than any between there and China's borders. And the girls who sat in the taverns, the most extraordinarily beautiful. So much so that he said the town might be termed the abode of beauty itself. The next city was somehow larger still. Its size immense. Its people innumerable. Its bronze idol fifty cubits high and known for its many limbs as the Thousand-Armed, which is also the name you can find it by if you look up Thousand-Armed, Thousand-Eyed, Guan Yin, at Longxing Temple, and see the Song Dynasty cast statue for yourself. Giath al-Din saw the smaller figures shaped in painted plaster, the images of monks in exercise or meditation, the paintings showing consummate expertise and mastery in their depiction of tigers, rams, leopards, and dragons. In this city, the emissary's gifts for the emperor were collected to be brought to Yongle, the one exception being the lion they had with them, for it would need to travel with its keeper. It was mid-October when they reached the Mongol Black River, better known now as the Yellow River. On a bridge of twenty-two boats, secured at either end by thick iron stakes, they went across near Lanzhou, and by boat or bridge, they made other crossings throughout November. They were nearing their destination, and after this break, we'll reach it with them.
as Giathaldin and the others traveled east. They did so using the system of post houses. There would be 99 of them all the way to their destination, with chains of beacon towers set between to warn of advancing armies, the signals racing ahead of the relay riders that would follow the beacons east with further details. Each post house was almost like a small town in itself, with people who lived there and worked the land, with 450 horses and donkeys to be made available, and, it seems, people for the wagons. Giath al-Din notes that they brought nearly 60 wagons for the emissaries, drawing them along in rope teams. At every station, sheep, geese, fowl, flour, honey, rice, vegetables, pickled garlic, and onions, as well as liquor, were provided. In every town, a banquet, and as the travelers neared their goal, those banquets improved the food and entertainment becoming ever more elaborate as they closed in on the imperial center. On December 14th of 1420, just over a year after they'd left Shah Rukh's Herat, Giath al-Din and the rest reached the palace he wrote of as Khan Balik, the home of the Yongle Emperor of Ming China, the place we know is Beijing. It was the morning and still dark, but they quote, beheld a city of inordinate magnitude, made all of stone, with walls a league in length, scaffolds, as is ever the case when you travel, set against those walls. They did not make the grandest of entrances into this grandest of cities. When they reached the moat, they found the gates were closed, likely due to the early hour, so they were let in by way of a tower that was under construction. Rather like underage drinkers entering an unfinished house, not so very much like official visitors from the rulers of the Timurid Empire, they entered the imperial city in darkness. Once inside, they were brought straight to the emperor's palace. They crossed the 700 feet of cut stone on foot, passing by the raised trunks of elephants on either side. And though the sun had not yet risen, they saw a great crowd of people there at the palace gate. Apparently, 100,000 of them. They saw how the gates revealed a vast, pleasant, and captivating open area, saw one of the emperor's pavilions there in the courtyard, and before it, a high platform with columns atop it, a bell, a dais, and three gates. The middle gate, the largest, was for the emperor himself. Two people awaited them there by the dais, and many more outside the gate. By dawn, nearly 300,000 waited outside, which I think we can read simply as a lot of people. There were 2,000 singers praising the emperor in harmony, and 2,000 soldiers with halberds, clubs, 
axes, javelins, swords, and maces. All around the perimeter of that large courtyard were chambers, balconies, and columns of great magnitude. Perhaps lit by torch, maybe just gradually appearing in the creeping pre-dawn light. With the rising of the sun, two people atop the platform sounded the bell, joined by drums, horns, and cymbals, and the gates opened. The people on the outside running in, rushing, as was customary, to see their emperor. Gyathaldin and the rest of the emissaries went in themselves, crossing that open space and coming to another, also vast and even more pleasing to the onlooker from afar than the first had been, and with a pavilion larger than the last. This one was in the shape of a triangle and draped in gold-flecked yellow silk, with representations of dragons, phoenix, and other winged creatures, and on it sat a golden chair. In lines to left and right, Chinese officers stood in rows, tablets in their hands, the soldiers behind them, too many even for Gyathaldin to guess at. They stood at attention, some with spears and some with drawn swords, all so silent and still that they seemed not even to breathe. Finally, the Yongle Emperor himself appeared, and climbing the silver steps, took his place in the golden chair. He was of medium height, Gyathaldin observed, with medium features, neither large nor small. He had facial hair, or facial hairs by the wording of this text, two or three hundred of them, gathered in three or four plates. But all of this doesn't exactly paint a picture. Gyathaldin actually had more to say of the girls who sat next to the emperor, ready to record what was said with pen and paper. Their quote, faces like the moon and countenances like the sun. Hair of ambergris knotted on top of their heads, their faces and necks exposed, and lustrous pearls in their ears. The emperor, by comparison, was apparently very medium. Looking at the portrait that has come down to us, I don't know that I can do much better, but I will try. He is a heavy-set man, at least in his robe. His beard is black and sits lightly on his sternum, almost seeming to lift off into the air, with a kind of double-decker mustache forking out to either side. He is full of chin and cheek, with a delicate mouth. His nose is tall, but not long. His brows start thin and horizontal from the center, and then settle bushily over the outer circles of his eyes. In the portrait, he appears calmly curious, incredibly unbothered. In those early hours of December 14th, 1420, he settled into his chair, and the day's business began. 
first to be dealt with, was a group of criminals, and then Gyath al-Din and the other envoys. And this might have been quite an intentional pairing, a way of putting them in their place, not letting them think they were too important, or that the emperor really cared all that much that they were there. Oh, the gesture seemed to say, it's you. Come on in, if you feel you must. But not just yet. It was to be those accused criminals first. Seven hundred of them, according to the text, brought forward together with the emissaries, but dealt with ahead of them. The accused were restrained by forked sticks round their necks. I'm imagining something similar to the traditional Japanese tools of arresting, or else secured to boards with their heads through holes in the wood. Up they went before the emperor, with their offense written on a board that hung from their neck, to receive his judgment while the envoys watched. Prison for this one, death for the next, one after the other, until it was the turn of Gyath al-Din and the other Timurid representatives. They were brought up before the emperor, brought to about twenty-two feet from his dais, and a Chinese official stepped forward to read the particulars of their embassy from a tablet, that they had traveled far, that they had come from Shahrukh and his sons, and that they had, quote, brought gifts and tribute for the emperor, in order to place their foreheads in obedience upon the ground of servitude, and be encompassed by the gaze of favor and grace. The travelers might have described matters differently themselves. Shah Rukh certainly would have. They were addressed by a man named Maulana Yusuf Kazi, a minister familiar, the text reads, with Arabic, Persian, Turkish, Mongolian, and Chinese, indicative of the way so much of the world came to the Yongle Emperor's doorstep. He approached them, with several other Muslim officials at his side, and told them, first bend down, and then touch your foreheads to the ground, three times. And they did almost. They bowed down, but they did not touch their heads to the ground, or so the text says. Maybe that was just something said in the report home, to reassure those back in Harat that they had not displayed any kind of inferiority in that first audience. Or maybe they really had refused to touch the ground. Though, if so, I wonder if it wasn't so close to the ground that nobody watching could really tell. Just enough separation to know that you were doing the rebellious thing. Not enough that anyone watching was going to take offense. They probably didn't really want to cause an unsightly incident on the first day, the very first meeting. After bending low, who knows how low, the envoys produced letters from Shah Rukh, from his sons, from the various princes and emirs who had provided them, all, as they had been directed to do, wrapped in yellow silk. 
These were brought to the chamberlain, who handed them to the emperor himself. The emperor called for robes then, three thousand of them to be distributed among relatives, children, and other notables, and to the emissaries themselves, seven of them, including Argyath al-Din, who went to their knees to receive them and to be questioned by the emperor. And I am admittedly viewing the exchange through the fogs of time, transmission, and translation, but it does feel as though it has the flavor of seeing someone's aging grandparent for the first time in a while. The emperor asked after Shahrukh, a kind of how's-your-dad-doing opener, and then he inquired after another ruler entirely, Kara Yusuf of the Kara Koyunlu dynasty, also known as the Black Sheep Turkomans. Would he be sending tribute? The emperor wanted to know. Yes, they replied. He would be sending gifts and tribute. What about your country? The emperor asked next. Is the grain cheap or expensive? Is good welfare for the privileged few or for the many? Grain is beyond the boundaries of perfection, they replied, and well-being is more inexpensive and more widespread than can be imagined. The emperor nodded at this, commenting politely about the ruler's heart aligning with the creator, and mentioned he might be requesting some horses from Kara Yusuf, for he had heard that his realm had excellent ones. Then he asked about the roads. Were they safe? The envoys replied that the roads in Shah Rukh's realm were such that people could come and go with total peace of mind. So I understand, answered the emperor. You have come a long way. Arise and have some food. And with that, their first audience was at an end. It is, of course, difficult to assess the tone of the whole encounter. The Yongle Emperor was sixty years old and would live for four more, and I was mostly joking about the comparison to an elderly relative, but he was prone to illness and erratic behavior, and later scholars have hypothesized arsenic poisoning, a neurological disease, or a psychological ailment were his the polite remarks of a disinterested royal. Was there something more pointed to the conversation than it at first appeared? What did the Yongle Emperor make of the meeting? Did he make of it much of anything at all? Perhaps the remainder of the Timurid's stay in the Imperial City will have some answers for us. But for those, and for the remainder of Giath al-Din's observations, we will need to wait for the next episode. I'll be back with that here soon. And if you are listening on the Patreon feed, then I'll be back sooner with a little bonus listening. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you then.
Human Circus will return.